The world is currently in the sixth period of mass species extinction, including the extinction of flora and fauna due to a variety of factors such as climate change, habitat loss, pollution, and the use of pesticides. Take, for example, the pollinator crisis. The populations of bees and other pollinators are declining around the world. Honeybees are essential for the pollination of flowers, fruits, and vegetables, and support about $20 billion worth of crop production in the U.S. annually, according to Matthew Malika, Senior Project Manager of the Keystone Policy Center. Over the past 15 years, bee colonies have been disappearing in what is known as a colony collapse disorder, according to National Geographic. Some regions have seen losses of up to 90%, the publication reported. Reasons include parasites such as the varroa mite, but also the use of pesticides and the decline of natural habitats such as hedgerows. The increase in the spread of zoonotic diseases to humans, as viscerally felt by the globe's population with the spread of COVID-19, is also a feature of greater encroachment of humans on animal habitats. In order to move beyond simply stating and measuring the magnitude of what has already been lost and what remains threatened, there are increasing attempts to use accounting, business and finance to influence corporate activity on the basis that much of the damage stems from this directly or indirectly. Engagement with companies on matters such as natural capital, as well as extinction accounting, and what it means for accountability are all issues that we will explore in this podcast. I asked Jill Atkins, Chair in Financial Management at Sheffield University Management School, and a visiting professor at the University of the Witwatersrands, South Africa, to speak about the extent of the crisis and her work in this area. I first asked Jill to sketch the extent of the current crisis. Well, I think it's really for the scientists. They've, they've defined it quite well um, in that a mass extinction is a situation where you have many, many millions of species at threat of extinction and species going extinct at a rate which is far faster than any natural rate of extinction. So we are actually in the middle of the sixth extinction crisis, the fifth one being the disappearance of the dinosaurs. So it's a very serious situation um, for animals, for plants and for the planet. We discussed how broadly species are being affected from plants to animals. There are hundreds of species at threat if not thousands of species i'm not obviously i'm not a botanist i'm i'm a finance professor but having read about it um it's flora and fauna so the extinction crisis is not just animals it's fish it's insects particularly we're in the middle of a an insect apocalypse with you know 70 80 percent of insect population has been wiped out in recent years when the last 20 years or so and um in plants, you know, there are all sorts of worrying issues. So, for example, the pharmaceutical industry, you know, we rely very heavily in medicines on plants from tropical areas, etc., which are at threat. So, you know, it isn't just animals at all. It's, it's everything, actually. Biodiversity, which is all living things, you know, plants, animals, fish, things in the water, things on land, things in the air, everything. Jill is a particular expert on the pollinator crisis and has written a book dedicated to the financial impact it will have called The Business of Bees. We talked about it. It's still ongoing. I mean, it's very much an ongoing situation. It's by no means solved. Um, the reason that I decided to do that book in 2016 was because I could see financial implications and financial materiality from bee decline, particularly. 
which is what I was interested in. And um, it's really a very good tool for allowing you to see the financial materiality of species loss generally. So bee decline has been going on for some couple of decades, quite seriously. And you're looking at two types of bees. You've got wild bees, bumblebees, bees which are solitary, bees which live in the wild. And you also have what we call commercial bees, bees in hives. And um, for many years now, we've had a situation of what they call colony collapse disorder, whereby bees in hives, colonies of bees, have suddenly disappeared or died. And this has happened on a very large scale, not just in one country, but globally. And they weren't really sure of what the reasons were. So there seemed to be multi-factor reasons one of the main ones being um, pesticide use. And I think that that's one of the overriding ones really. And, um, you know, you're looking at huge losses of bee populations. So in the commercial bee industry in the United States, for example, they're losing probably 40 to 45% every year of their, their bees and beehives. And of course, there's a direct impact then on the um, agricultural industry because they're pollinators. Jill is a professor of finance and translating the concepts of extinction into numbers and underscoring their financial materiality is an essential first step to measuring the impact on business of the current extinction. Well, it's a very good tool, as I say, to demonstrate financial materiality for species. So if you think about the agricultural industry, a large proportion of um, agricultural food produce is pollinated by bees and other pollinators but you know primarily bees so the almond industry for example in the usa is getting a lot of press at the moment and the problems they're having with pollinators there so if you imagine a situation which has actually happened in china in one of the provinces whereby all the insects that pollinate disappear then how do you produce the um the crops and the only way you can do it is to hand pollinate. And can you imagine hand pollinating all the crops needed every year to feed the human population? So it's, it's a very simple uh, way of demonstrating why species loss or species decline can impact materially and significantly on an industry. In this case, if you look at the farming and agriculture industry, food, retail, food supply, and um, how that supply chain is affected by species loss. We then turn to the ways in which we can begin to solve some of these problems. There is a lot going on. There's, there are a lot of initiatives um, globally. I mean, if you just look at the UK, there's been a significant initiative called Beeline, produced by um, Bug Life or initiated by Bug Life, one of the charities, which is basically a policy to try to connect land. So from Scotland to the south of England, um, it's an effort to try to connect up farmland. So there are corridors between all of those areas and wild areas so that pollinators can travel. So one of the big issues is, is habitat. If you imagine the, um, the extent of mono agriculture, around the world you only have to go to farming areas rural areas to see you know huge swathes of land just completely dominated by one crop so there's no floral biodiversity for bees to forage so one of the initiatives has been and is ongoing um, to try to introduce floral biodiversity different plants into farming areas 
you know, hedges breaking up mono agriculture. So that's that's one of the main areas where I think um, there can be success. And the other, which of course the investment industry has been quite heavily involved in lobbying companies to to act on, is reducing pesticide use because it's quite clear to me anyway that the use of many of these pesticides, particularly neonics as they're called, is having a detrimental effect on bees. One way is engagement with companies. If we look at bees as a starting point, in 2016, when we published the e-book, Business of Bees, um, we, we held a launch, a book launch at Hermes, actually, in London. And we, um, we talked about the book. I did an introduction and there were about 100 investors in the room, from what I remember. And we also had some of the main pesticide companies there. And, you know, it was just raising that as an issue, as a financial risk issue for investors, because obviously if you're invested in the food industry at any point in the food industry and, you know, their products are being affected by bee decline and pollinator decline generally, which is definitely um, the case, then it's a financial risk. So that was when we really raised that. And of course, very soon after that, as a result of um, of that event really, Hermes developed a pollinator strategy, which is now quite well developed, you know, it's quite significant. And that's what I would call extinction engagement. So if you're looking at species, then engagement, direct dialogue and um, one-on-one meetings between institutional investment industry and companies on species decline is a form of extinction engagement, I think. But certainly on pollinators, um, the pollinator strategy introduced by Hermes was, was very significant. I think it's probably having and hopefully having a significant impact. And similarly, other investors are also engaging now on, um, on pollinator loss. And one of the main areas, I say, is to try to get farmers down the supply chain, producers to stop using um, dangerous pesticides. The consumer, too, can have a role. Well, I suppose if you want to buy organic produce, that's going to be a lot better because it's supposedly, um, you know, meant to be free from from chemicals, from um, all sorts of other forms of intervention. But of course, organic foods are more expensive. Um, I think I think consumers are demonstrating understandings in these areas and wanting to make a difference where possible. But of course, cost is always a problem, and I'm. I think, you know, obviously the consumer lobby on companies is very important and very significant. But then the level of knowledge, you know, there's so many things at the moment. You know, what what do we worry about first as a consumer? Do we worry about, you know, seafood? Do we worry about marine stewardship? Do we worry about pollinators? Do we worry about organic? Um, You know, there are so many things for people to be concerned about that I think I've always felt that the investment industry has the most significant power to actually make a difference in these areas. Getting back to translating the extinction crisis into financial concepts, Jill explained her definition of extinction accounting. Well, of course, accounting is not just about numbers and reporting financial statements. Accounting is very much about um, discharging an accountability. And if you think about the concept of double materiality, which, of course, is is becoming increasingly important, then companies have to concern themselves with financial materiality, obviously. So 
if you're in the agriculture industry, you should be concerned about the financial materiality of potential pollinator decline on your industry, on your bottom line. But also double materiality means that companies need to discharge an accountability for their impacts on nature, on natural capital, on the different aspects of capital, on the multi-capital framework, and certainly in relation to, um, to pollinators, where they may be having a negative or deleterious impact on pollinators and bees, then they have a they need to do something and act, but also they are accountable. So they need to discharge that accountability through the accounting function. So to answer your question, I suppose more succinctly than um, you know, it's important for businesses to, first of all, report on anything in their accounts, their reports, their external reporting, their sustainability reporting, which is financial material, but also they have to now report on, um, on their impacts and the way that their businesses impact on species, on biodiversity. And that's becoming increasingly important now. I think that anybody would say that there's an enormous amount of improvement needed. The first time which um, KPMG have decided to report on biodiversity, particularly, is 2020. So their latest sustainability review, which looks at an enormous number of companies, I can't remember how many offhand, um, you know, is highlighting biodiversity as an area where improvements are needed but basically demonstrating that this is an area which is going to become increasingly important. So I think, you know, we've all seen the maturing of um, reporting on climate and climate related risks, etc. Biodiversity is the new issue coming through, which is at least as important to businesses, but also to society as climate change. And I think that's now being recognised. I also spoke with Warren Maroon, a colleague and co-author of Jill's, who is based at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa, about the work that South African listed companies are doing in the realm of biodiversity preservation and extinction accounting. South Africa is very fortunate because we boast significant biodiversity reserves and areas of significant ecological importance. They've got obviously places like the Kruger National Park, which is world-renowned for being one of the sort of world's remaining pristine wilderness areas. There are other really important reserves located in other parts of the country. There's a place called the Kalahari Chemsburg Peace Park, which is a peace park with Botswana, uh, which again is a, a really important reserve for, for, arid, uh, or for arid areas and arid regions. There are places in the Karoo, there are places in the Western Cape, places like Table Mountain, where there are certain plants and animal species that just don't occur anywhere else um, in the world. And I always tell people that putting a place like South Africa and, and, and like the Kruger Park and the Kalahari Desert and, and the biomes in Western Cape and, and the Garden Route um, you know, on the bucket list is really imperative because there are just areas of, of natural beauty which you won't see anywhere else. So that's the context, I think, in which this extinction accounting uh, becomes so critical and why there's such an important need to, to mobilize the private sector to start thinking about extinction of species and to get the private sector to work towards reporting on these issues and assisting in, in addressing the way in which they engage with the environment. And at the same time, we need to sort of mobilize the public sector, uh, different levels of, of government, both local and at the national level, to bring them to the party and say, well, let's see how we can actually put these two groups of people together and get them to work 
towards what Jill likes to call an emancipatory vision of accounting, and what I like to refer to as an economically transformative approach uh, to doing business, where, where the term business refers to the activities of both the private um, and the public sector, or rather extinction accounting is being framed from the South African point of view, not as something that is, that is completely separate from the traditional accounting system, but rather something which needs to actually be better understood and better incorporated into the existing accounting and management system to allow companies to identify risks more appropriately, to generate values more responsibly, and to understand what the total cost of their product actually is. We talked about various other nature-based solutions. I think there are, and there have to be, many, many different solutions, and it's such a complex area. You know, you're, you're dealing with thousands, hundreds of thousands of species and trying to get an understanding of how they're all interrelated. So the reason that we look at extinction accounting is that all species are interrelated and their joint impact upon ecosystem services and the provision of ecosystem services to natural capital is significant. So we don't actually know which species are what we call keystone species. And I think species accounting is now starting to dawn as a practice. Um, I don't know whether you're aware, but there was a launch last week of the Biological Diversity Protocol, which I co-authored, and that BD Protocol, that Biological Diversity Protocol, is a standardised framework, the first standardised framework for businesses or organisations to report on biodiversity. And I think that's going to be the beginning of a big change in reporting um, globally. One of the most novel solutions to address decline in animal species is the launch of social impact bonds tied to the restoring of endangered populations such as rhinos. I spoke with Namdi Akolo, a researcher who works with Jill about his work in this area. We first spoke about the extent of the extinction crisis facing rhinos. The rhinos have decreased over the last two, three decades from about 60,000 and have dropped down to about 5,500. And this has been largely due to poaching activities because their rhino horns contain a keratin, which are relevant for medicines and other luxurious type of products, especially on areas, uh, location regions like in the Asian market. And this has led to an increase in the value or incentives to poachers because a kilo of rhino horn can go as high as about $30,000, which is, will I say, the price at which it's sold to the demand and the supply to get it from these poachers can go as low as about $5,000. So the large differentials uh, makes it quite attractive for poachers. And often these poachers are locals from around those areas, more specifically to keen emphasis to Africa, and they see it as an opportunity to make uh, some source of, of living, basically. And this has led to the depletion and uh, the reduction in number of rhinos existing. We are hoping to find ways of integrating the communities into the management and uh, protection of the rhinos. The rhinos are now currently kept in protected areas, which are either state-owned or private-owned. And so we are hoping that there could be an integration of the communities and locals into the management uh, to, of, of the rhinos. And by so doing, there'll be an overall understanding of the values that the rhinos bring you know, to the, the societies. 
We spoke about an innovative set of rhino impact bonds tied to the efforts made to improve the rhino population at five black rhino conservation sites. The rhino impact bond model uh, has been, because there is a large deficit and the number of rhinos and the funding of rhinos, because there's owed to the pressures of, of poachers, uh, poaching goes on as, is as persistent as uh, weekly attacks on these uh, private areas. So there is a need for increased security. And because of the increased security and the ban on sale of rhino hunts, it has become less lucrative for individuals to own rhinos as a population and so because of this increased cost and that has led to the royal duchess foundation to uh, consider ways of introducing private capital into the spaces and with the aim of providing funds to support protection of rhinos improving uh, the security and enhancing the uh, management of these uh, rhinos in uh, private areas and the way is supposed to work basically is that to ensure that there is efficiency and effectiveness, there is the outcome payer who accepts to make a final payment if the number of rhinos achieved, let's say a 10% increase in rhino growth over the next five years. Uh, That's in terms of reproduction and the fact that uh, none of them get killed or pushed. However, they don't release the capital. The private protected areas need to get this contract from the outcome payer and then seek for funds from the market investor. And the market investor provides them with this capital and monitors the activities to ensure that the rhino achieves the expected outcomes of the outcome payer. After the five-year period, if this is achieved, the outcome payer reimburses the private investor along with a premium for taking on the risk of failure of these rhinos to achieve the expected growth rate. The investor might, for example, be a foundation, endowment, or private investor with an interest in this mission. I asked Namdi who the outcome payers would be. We have a couple of them involved. For instance, we have GEF, which is Global Environmental Facilities Agencies. We have ZSL, and we have the Royal Duchess Foundation as well as the outcome payers. This has not been tested before in this specific form, but is a follow-on from the established social impact bond concept. The proceeds of the bonds will be used to cover areas such as greater security and the promotion of breeding. The bonds are not only expected to deliver a meaningful financial return, but will also have the double materiality of the impact on rhino populations. Although we are just starting out, the future looks bright for leveraging this bond for further endangered populations. It's expected to be a five-year duration of the bond, and it's expected that if it is successful after the first two years, because it's going to begin in South Africa on three investment-ready sites, and if it's successful after the first two years, it would be expanded into areas like Kenya, where there are also rhinos kept in protected areas. And the bigger aspirations are for it to be applied into other areas of endangered species. Finally, as noted at the beginning, the devastating disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic is traceable to zoonotic diseases leaping to humans as novel viruses. Let's go back to Jill to hear her views on the links between the spread of COVID-19 and biodiversity loss. There are very, very strong links there. So I would say um, about 18 months ago, biodiversity is an issue, certainly in the investor industry, the investment industry, and in accounting, was starting to become more important, become acknowledged as a very, very significant issue. And the onset of the pandemic a year ago, 
has accelerated that change. It's been a significant catalyst in raising awareness of the importance of biodiversity. The linkages, according to the scientists, are very, very significant between um, the creation and spread of pandemics, zoonotic diseases and biodiversity loss. And the main reason, if you imagine um, in Africa, for example, where they've had pandemics for quite some years, much of it is because you have businesses going into areas which are wild areas. So if you imagine, you know, jungles with with monkeys that carry zoonotic diseases um, or bats, people, employees going into those areas to do mining, sometimes illegal mining or light legal mining with large businesses, it's very easy for them to come into direct contact with species which are um, are being threatened, but also which carry these diseases. So very much so the mining industry is one case. I mean, if we look at the current pandemic, it's um, pretty clear that it came from the consumption of endangered species. And of course, again, it's population growth and habitat loss, people encroaching further and further onto wild spaces and coming increasingly into contact with um, endangered species as well as wild species. So that's pushing biodiversity to um, a very difficult situation and bringing people into contact. And also, obviously, in this case, um, the consumption of, of wild creatures. And this has been predicted for a long time. So, you know, the the worrying thing is that we have to find a way of reducing pandemic risk through policy and strategy. And I, I've actually written a paper which proposes um, investor questions for investor engagement, which are aimed at reducing pandemic risk. And um, I think that's something that, that really needs to be looked at very seriously now to prevent another um, situation as we are in at the moment. Like many of our podcasts, we end on a hopeful note about elevating the concept of biodiversity up in the order of priorities. I think that it has raised awareness in certain areas, certainly in the professional industries. So, you know, there's been a lot of papers and reports coming through the investment industry on biodiversity and linking it to zoonotic diseases. There was one really important one by McBain, which came out a couple of months ago. But, but you know, basically that that is a story which is now really becoming ingrained in the professional community. I think in the wider communities, probably, you know, social communities, there is an awareness, but it's not as developed or as mature. But this is an area which now is going to continue to accelerate. And certainly from my point of view, yes, of course, climate change is a critical issue, which we are dealing with. You know, it is now ingrained into accounting frameworks. It's uh, mandatory in accounting frameworks. And, you know, climate change is now a, a political and um, economic issue all around the world. But biodiversity is not, and it needs to be raised to that status. And I'm, I'm sure that now we've had the Desdutch Review in the UK, for example, and it's getting a lot more attention at high, high policy level, governmental level, then I, I suspect that it will be raised to at least equal status because it's such a threat, not just to businesses, not just to um, 
conservationists, but you know, ultimately to the future of the human race as well as a species, which is is very important to consider. I'm Ethan David. Thank you for listening to this instalment of our biodiversity focus series. There are links to further materials referred to by all of our guests in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Some of the guests featured on this podcast are not employees of Federated Hermes. The views and opinions expressed by these guests are their own personal views. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.